0: real noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
2: Useless Information
1: Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast this episode, which is titled Coney Island's Baby Incubators, was first recorded and released on January 9th of 2011. I do recall that I first came across a story after reading the article titled The Coney Island Baby Laboratory by Gary R. Brown in the fall 1994 issue of American Heritage Invention and Technology magazine. And while the recording quality of this episode is not the best, I'm constantly blowing out the microphone, the story is Definitely among my favorites of all that I've ever recorded. So I'm hoping that you find it equally enjoyable. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman and today's story is titled Coney Island's Baby Incubators. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. Today's question of the day deals with Rockstar's drink of choice, that is Jack Daniels. And there really was a guy named Jack Daniel, that's Daniel, not Daniels, and he died back in 1911. And my question for you today is how did the real Jack Daniel die? Was it one, was he poisoned by cyanide gas that was produced while he was treating one of his whiskey barrels? Or was it two, he couldn't remember the combination to his safe, so he kicked the safe and his toe became infected and he died from the blood poisoning? Or three, was he electrocuted while changing a light bulb over a bathtub that was filled with water? Or four, did he eat insufficiently cooked polar bear meat while he was on an expedition to the North Pole? Again, how did the real Jack Daniel die? Was it one, was he poisoned by cyanide gas that was produced while he was treating one of his whiskey barrels? Or two, he couldn't remember the combination to a safe, so he kicked it, his toe then became infected, and he died from the blood poisoning. Or three, was he electrocuted while changing a light bulb over a bathtub that was, of course, filled with water? Or four, did he eat insufficiently cooked polar bear meat while he was on an expedition to the North Pole? As always, I'll let you ponder over this question, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story on Coney Island's baby incubators. Now, before I start, I need to tell you that whenever, uh, you know, whenever I tell the story of Coney Island's baby incubators to someone, they almost immediately react with some form of disgust. They quickly question why anyone could or even would want to place premature babies on display in a carnival sideshow exhibit. Yet, by the time I finish, most take a more sympathetic and understanding view of this unusual piece of medical history, and I hope uh, that you do too. Now to start, uh, I need to place the story in a bit of context as to what was going on at the time. You see, if a child was born prematurely, prior to the 1940s, there was very little hope of survival. That's because hospitals at the end of the 19th and early 20th century had to deal with a high mortality rate of full-term infants, so therefore little thought time or money was provided for the preemies that were assumed, at least at the time, to have very little chance of survival. In 1878, a leading Parisian obstetrician named, and I did check with my wife for the uh, pronunciation, although I'm sure I'm still going to butcher this, Anyway, it's Etienne Stéphane Tarnier. Uh, Anyway, he was visiting an exhibition and came across a warming chamber for chickens that intrigued him. So he asked the zookeeper to build him a similar box that would be, you know, large enough to hold one or two premature babies. And two years later, Tarnier began using this warm air incubator at Paris' maternity hospital. And while it was crude in design, Tarnier was able to reduce infant mortality rate by 28% over a three-year period. One Tarnier's students, a pediatrician named Pierre Boudin, uh, further improved on these incubators, and this is where the main character in our story comes in. You see, another doctor, Martin Arthur Cooney, uh, was doing his postdoctorate work under the guidance of Dr. Boudin. So in 1896, Dr. Boudin asked Dr. Cooney uh, to display his newly improved incubator at the Berlin Exposition, to generate some much-needed publicity for his premium ward, and, of course, uh, you know, ultimately gain more funding and space for his research. But Cooney hit upon the idea of placing real, live, premature babies into the incubators to make the exhibit more interesting. The six-child exhibit was called the Kinderbrutenstalt, which literally means child hatchery. Okay, well, maybe child hatchery isn't a politically correct term, but it really did work. Even less politically correct was that the exhibit was in the amusement section of the exposition. Several batches of children were provided by the Berlin's Charity Hospital, mainly because they had little chance of survival, but by the end of the show, all of the babies had survived. An admission fee was charged, but that was intended to cover all of the expenses incurred. The exhibit was a phenomenal success, and the exhibit made a substantial profit in the end. This led to exhibit after exhibit, first in Europe and then in the United States. Then in 1903, Frederick Thompson opened what was to be the largest amusement park ever built. That was called Luna Park in Coney Island, New York. Thompson convinced Cooney to open a permanent exhibit in his Coney Island project, and Cooney agreed. It quickly became Coney Island's most popular sideshow attraction. It's hard to believe As an interesting side note uh, that I should mention here, two of Cooney's siblings used the more anglicized pronunciation of Coney. Uh, And if he had chosen the same, it would have been Coney's baby exhibit at Coney Island. It was like a match made in heaven. Cooney insisted that his show be run in the most professional manner possible. And in a lot of ways, it was like a small hospital. There was a long row of a dozen or so incubators widely spaced along a wall. And if you do a quick search on the web, uh, you really will find some excellent pictures of the exhibits. I encourage you to do so. They were very bright, clean, and professional design where warm, filtered air was streamed into each of the incubators. And then there was a staff of nurses that attended to the baby's needs day and night. At the beginning of each season, Cooney would hire four or five wet nurses to feed the preemies. All of the wet nurses were kept out of view, and they'd live with their own full-term baby at the incubator facility until the close in the fall. Now, To make sure that the babies received the highest quality milk, a cooking staff prepared strict diets for the wet nurses. And if a wet nurse was caught consuming some forbidden food, say, you know, maybe a uh, Nathan's famous Coney Island hot dog, she would be fired on the spot. Now, that doesn't mean that everything was exactly on the up and up, so to speak. Nurses were encouraged to add more clothing as the babies grew, and that was to give the illusion that the babies were tinier than they really were. And the head nurse, Louise Wright, she wore an oversized ring so that she could show the viewing public just how tiny each baby's hands were. And while everything was pretty much serious inside the baby incubator exhibits, the outside was a totally different story. Out on the boardwalk, there were the barkers who were trying to steer customers in. One of them in particular was named Archibald Leach. Uh, Now, today, the world knows him much better under his stage name, which was Cary Grant. Mm, I think maybe he should have stuck with the name Archibald Leach. Doesn't it sound better than Cary Grant? Well, maybe not. There was initial criticism that Cooney used the babies as a money-making scheme to line his own pockets. And while he certainly did make money and he was known for having expensive tastes, most of the 25-cent admission was used to cover the cost of the baby's care. Cooney never accepted any payment from parents that brought their babies in for care. In addition, he made no distinction whether the baby was from rich or poor, black or white, or whatever type of family. All babies were treated equally. And while he never took a single penny from the parents, he was always puzzled by their unappreciative attitude when the babies were picked up and finally taken home. There was just a total lack of interest on the parents' part. So it became clear to him that not only did the child need help to develop properly, but work also needed to be done so that the parent-child bond was properly formed. Even his own daughter Hildegard was a product of the baby incubators. You see, she was born six weeks premature in February of 1907. Now, the exhibit was closed for the winter, so Cooney had an incubator retrieved to keep her alive. She eventually grew up to become a registered nurse and did work for her father. While Cooney had established his home base in Coney Island, exhibits at the other shows did continue. For example, he did shows in Buffalo, New York, Portland, Oregon, Mexico City, Atlantic City, Chicago, and so on. These shows were typically a huge success. Uh, For example, during its 10-month run at the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition, say that three times fast, which took place in San Francisco, Uh, The baby incubator's uh, exhibit took in over $72,000. That's quite a chunk of money for 1915. They are pretty much forgotten today by most people, but when the Dion Quintuplets, that was the first set ever to survive infancy, were born in Canada in May of 1934, newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst attempted to hire Cooney and his services, of course, to capitalize on their fame. Now, Cooney declined, claiming that he was concerned that there would be no gas to heat his incubators in the Row Woods of Ontario. He said publicly that he needed to stay behind and care for the 30 or so babies that were back in his facility. But in reality, Cooney confided that he thought that the Quince had little chance of survival and he didn't want to face that failure being highly publicized. That kind of publicity could destroy the reputation of his baby incubator exhibits, which of course would cause him financial hardship and probably the loss of countless preemie lives. But eventually the end did come, an elaborate exhibit was set up at the 1939-1940 New York's World Fair, which would be his 22nd and final exhibition. The overhead at the fair was huge, which not only required a large investment on Cooney's part. But the fair operators required that 25% of the gross receipts be turned over to them. In addition, the incubator babies, which Cooney had been displaying at various exhibitions for you know about 45 years at that point, was old news to the public. Uh, so not as many people wanted to see them. By the end of the World's Fair, Cooney would be broke and his finances would never, ever recover. Cooney continued his Coney Island operation for a few more years but finally closed it down in 1943. Coney Island as a whole had gone way downhill and the baby incubators were no longer profitable. But all was not lost, you see Cornell University opened a training and research center for premature babies at their New York hospital. Their facility was very similar in design to Cooney's exhibits and used much of the same technology and skills that Cooney had developed over his 50 years or so that he'd been caring for preemie babies. Sadly, uh, Cooney passed away at his home in Coney Island on March 1, 1950. It has been estimated that Cooney and his staff saved the lives of 6,500 of the 8,000 or so babies placed in his care. That is 6,500 babies that would have died otherwise. When Cooney shut down the exhibit for the last time, he was quoted as saying to his nephew, I made propaganda for the preemie, and to that he added, my work is done. And so it was. Useless, useful, I'll leave
2: that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're gonna let you go.
1: This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault.
2: And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream so please join me wherever you listen to podcasts
0: everybody shush william shatner has something to say cat
1: and jethro box of oddities
2: what
0: do you do when the woman you love dies
1: Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is
2: really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the
1: strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
2: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
1: And now for a few words from our retro sponsor... the moment for camel cigarettes. During the war, the makers of camel cigarettes sent a total of more than 150 million free camels to our fighting men overseas. Now free camels are sent to servicemen's hospitals instead. This week, the camels go to Veterans Hospital Fort Lyon, Colorado, USAF Station Hospital Davis-Monthan Field, Tucson, Arizona, U.S. Naval Hospital Quantico, Virginia, U.S. Marine Hospital Baltimore, Maryland, and Veterans Hospital Palo Alto, California. Camel broadcasts go out to the United States three times a week. I rebroadcast to practically every area in the world where men are still stationed and to our good neighbors in Central and South America. That commercial is from the March 2nd, 1940 episode of Abbott and Costello and was titled, Lou Joins the Yankees, and contains their most famous bit, Who's on First? Uh, Camel cigarettes were introduced in 1913 by R.J. Reynolds and was the first nationally marketed cigarette uh, You know, since most people at that time rolled their cigarettes. An unbelievable 425 million packs were sold in the first year alone. The brand was named Camel because the cigarettes were made from Turkish rolling paper, which was an imitation of the then-fashionable Egyptian cigarettes. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call News of the Weird Past. Our first tidbit is dated October 9, 1931, and takes place in Athens, Tennessee. It seems that a man named W.R. Cotney was indicted for shooting a cow which was, and I assume still is, clearly against the law. So Cotney pled guilty and then Judge John Blair handed down a sentence for violation of the statute. He was fined 1 cent for doing so. That's it, 1 penny. It turns out that the statute was passed way back in 1803 and just was never adjusted for inflation. Our next little tidbit goes back to November 5, 1954, where it's reported that Mrs. James Sharpless asked her husband, Mr. James Sharpless, to change his tie. She felt that the coral-colored tie was just too wild for the classes he taught at the University of Southern California but he ignored her advice and wore it anyway. Then something odd happened. It turned from coral to a bluish-purple color. I think I had a t-shirt that used to do this. And no, it wasn't some sort of early mood ring-type tie. There was something in the air that caused the color to change, and the professor had a hunch that smog was the culprit. He placed the tie in a brown bottle, and he planned to research different components of the smog to see what caused the color change. Now, I did do some further research, but I couldn't find any further stories on whether or not he found the cause. Our last tidbit for today is dated July 23, 1960, which reported that science teacher Robert George was in the process of making a flea map of the United Kingdom. You got that? A flea map. He had cataloged over 60,000 fleas and found that 61 different varieties existed in Britain and Ireland. To help him out, he had 70 people spread around the country, and they collected and sent samples to him, including one that proved to be the first cat flea ever found in Surrey. The purpose of producing the map was to let people know what type of flea they were likely to encounter around their homes. Now, Honestly, I would think that most people wouldn't care what kind of flea it was. If they found a flea in their homes, that just means an expensive trip to the vet. Now, I did do some further checking, and it turns out that Bob George had started the project in 1950 and was still at it when an updated 98-page flea atlas was published in 2008, at which point he was 86 years of age. The first edition was published back in 1974. I was amazed to find out that dog fleas have become very rare in Britain. So if your dog has fleas in Britain, it is almost certainly a cat flea instead. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked how Jack Daniel died, and I gave you four choices. Was it one, was he poisoned by cyanide gas that was produced while he was treating one of his whiskey barrels? Or two, he couldn't remember the combination to his safe, so he kicked it. His toe then became infected, and he died from blood poisoning. Or three, was he electrocuted while changing a light bulb over a bathtub filled with water? Or four, he ate insufficiently cooked polar bear meat while on an expedition to the North Pole. Oddly, Jasper Newton Daniel died on October 10, 1911 at age 65 because he couldn't remember the combination to his safe. He'd forgotten it many other times before, but one morning he kicked that safe in anger. As a result, his toe became infected, which ultimately led to his death. If you're curious, you can tour the plant and see the exact safe that killed him. They have it there. Uh, Just be aware that they won't be giving you any free samples. That's because Lynchburg, Tennessee, where the plant is located, is part of Moore County, which is a dry county. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on Coney Island's baby incubators, as well as our question of the day on Jack Daniel, listening to our retro sponsor, Camel Cigarettes, and the news of the weird past tidbits on being fined for shooting a cow one penny, Uh, that color-changing tie that we still don't know why it changed color, and, of course, the U.K. flea map that, you know, if you're going to go visit the U.K., you have to get a copy of that so you know what you'll encounter. Now, if you would like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. Now, a couple of weeks ago, right before uh, school break, Christmas break, um, one of my students was looking up his name on Google. So I don't know, I was sitting around and I decided to try the same thing. I hadn't checked my name in a long time. And I was shocked to find out that there is a Turkish edition of my book, Einstein's Refrigerator, available for free online. Someone really went through the bother of translating it into Turkish. Now, I don't get a penny from this, but if you can read Turkish, feel free to download it and uh, and read it uh, as much as you want and do whatever you want because I don't get anything from it. I never intended to get any money from the Turkish market. Now, I did run the first paragraph through one of those online translators, and I thought I'd share that with you so you can get an idea of, you know, how it translates through one of those translators. You ready? Okay, here we go. Uh, Here's how it translates. You came to my book nicely. I will not lengthen the remark much because I know that she will pass a very admission section with the strength curiosity you do not do. Now, what I really wrote was, Welcome to my book. I am well aware that most people want to breeze right through the introduction, so I will keep this short. That seems to be the same thing. It just shows you how inaccurate those online translators can be and why you should never use them in your language classes. Well, let me bring this to a close by stating once again if for some crazy reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. And I know some of you may have emailed me and I haven't answered. I have a few messages uh, piling up right now. I will get to those, honestly, in the next few days. Um, But you can email me and eventually I will answer when I get some time. Uh, You can also feel free to visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And it does have a link uh, to the podcast site if you'd like to go outside of iTunes. Uh, And lastly, as always, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Uh, I noticed on the last episode that I had gotten a little over 14,000 listeners, so so it is increasing at a pretty rapid rate. And I thank you for doing so, and uh, thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll tune in the next time. Bye.